Father, as we come before you this morning, we lift up this time. Holy Spirit, we ask for your guidance and leading. Bless us, Lord, to do your work. Bless us, Lord, as we come together. Bless us, Lord, as we praise you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Mic failure? No. What? There we go, Jonah. Um, and so today we're going to open up with Jonah. We're going to do a couple of weeks in Jonah, and then we're going to go into Malachi. I, I love the minor prophets because they're so overlooked. Um, people don't usually think on the top of their heads, "What will I read today?" Yes, I'm going to read the Book of Amos. Yeah, it just doesn't really appeal to some people. But it's amazing that the, the imagery, the the understanding of what's going on in these books is fantastic, and we need. Get it into context. You understand what's going on historically. It really does have a lot of context for us today. With Jonah in particular. Now, I'm going to start with uh, a time period, 1989. Yep, that's not that long ago. Um, It was last century, but still not that long ago for me. I was still in my last year of high school in 1989. Yep, you too. Yep, there we go. Cool. Anyway, everyone else is like, what, 1989? Uh, 1989, uh, a team of archaeologists, they left the town of Mosul in northern Iraq, heading for what looked like to the naked eye uh, an empty burial uh, mound. It looked just like a whole blot of sand with a little bit of ruin around it, but no one had any idea what was really there, and they did, but they needed to uncover it to figure out what was going on. And what they did find was a gate to a large city. The entrance with the uh, defensive walls and what they also uncovered was something catastrophic. It happened at this spot. There was a lot of burnt things around. Uh, The walls had obviously been caved in. It was quite dramatic. What they had found was something that occurred at the date of 600 BC. A place called the Holsey Gate one of 15 gates that led into the big city of Nineveh. Now, as they started um, getting deeper into the archaeology, kids turn away for a moment, they discovered quite a lot of bodies. People who had died on the spot in the middle of what looked like a dramatic battle. A lot of the people were burnt. uh, They had noted that the roofing had collapsed on these people. There's not just bones of people, but also of horses and cattle. Now, archaeology has a way of sterilizing things because, well, they're just bones. But what they uncovered was something that had dramatically happened on this day that had caused, caused all this destruction. In fact, it was the last days of this mighty town called Nineveh. Now, it was a mighty town because... Well, the walls alone were huge. This is just the outer walls, approximately 20 metres tall, 15 metres thick. And just in the Halsey Gate area, there were six towers, just in that area alone. But what happened on this date, the date actually I think was about 609 BC, when the Medes 
and the Babylonians and the Scythians all gathered together and went to war on Israel, on uh, Assyria, sorry. They destroyed it completely and so completely that 200 years later, a Greek general by the name of Xenophon, who was working with a group of uh, um, mercenary uh, Greek soldiers who were working with the Persians, were in the area and they walked by and he had this to write about it. He said this. This is from his uh, famous classic work called the Anabasis. He says, from this place they marched one stage, six parasangs, which is about 24 kilometers, to a great stronghold, deserted and lying beside a city. The name of the city was Mispila. The foundation of its wall was made by polished stone full of shells, and it was 50 feet in breadth and 50 feet in height. And upon this foundation was built a wall of brick, 50 feet in breadth and 100 feet high. And the circuit of the wall was, well, 24 kilometers. Now, he asked the locals, he said, people, who, who owns these abandoned cities, these destroyed cities? And the people didn't know. They thought, I think it's the Medes. And he knew it wasn't the Medes. And so he just went on. The destruction of Nineveh was so total that 200 years later, people living in the area didn't even know that the city was Nineveh. They didn't know that what was in their very backyard belonged to a group of people that lived there for 2,500 years. Now, just to put that into perspective, we've got a lot of archaeological evidence. We've got a lot of their um, uh, archaeology on, on the Assyrians. If you go to the British Museum in London, you'll find there's a whole room on their carvings. And they, they did a lot of pictograms showing off. They were very arrogant as a people. They were quite happy to show what they, they did. You know, fighting hand-to-hand against the lion. You can imagine the guy saying, yeah, no, 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 I'm standing up and pretend that the lion's up against me. Draw that one. Um, They've been around for 2,500 years. We in the modern era, we date the modern era from the Renaissance, which was about 500 years ago. The Assyrians have been around five times longer than that. They were a fixture of the ancient world through all the ups and downs and many empires around them, disappearing, the Hittites, the Scythians, they disappeared. All these nations around them disappeared, but they remained. And they weren't very nice guys. They were actually referred to many times by even theologians as like the Nazis of the ancient era. They were pretty harsh people. Uh, Here's a nice little pictogram of them carrying slaves from recent conquered lands and the soldiers carrying the heads of the slaves. Joyously, it looks like. They were not nice people, but unlike the Nazis who were only around for what? In power for 15 years? These guys were in power for 2,500 years. Imagine that, having them as a neighbour. Imagine having them on the world circuit and just never disappearing. But then imagine, within a couple of years, they're gone, completely and absolutely. This is the pretext of understanding Jonah. And I'm going to go a little bit into Israel's history because we need to understand also where Israel's at at this period of time. 
So if we go back on the clock a little bit, this is what the empire looked like, the Assyrian Empire at its maximum. They had all the way down to Egypt. And literally from one day to the next, that was gone. But for Israel, we go to 930 BC, and that's when Solomon died. That's when Solomon handed the reins of the kingdom to his son, Rehoboam. But there were a little problems happening in Israel. And like all good brothers or siblings, uh, they didn't get along very well. Rehoboam did go north to Samaria to help try and keep it all one nation. We don't know the actual dates, but within a very, very short time of his reign, Israel split into two. The ten tribes to the north, the two tribes to the south, the kingdom of Israel to the, to the north, the kingdom of Judah to the south. And that would have been around 928 BC. Now, fast forward a little bit. We go to 841 BC in the kingdom of Israel. Jehu kills Jehoram, who is the king at the time. Jehoram is the son of Ahab. Remember the story of Ahab and Jezebel? That's Jehoram is their son. He's the second king from their line. Jehu rallies up the people and he kills everyone and he has Jezebel thrown from a window. And that cuts the line of Ahab at that point and he becomes king. And then his successors, his grandchildren and great-grandchildren, all the way to 790. Now, we know a little bit about Jehu because the Assyrians actually have records of this guy. Again, in the British Museum, you can go and find the black onyx of Shalmaneser III. And on that, there is Jehu paying tribute to King Shalmaneser III, giving tribute. He basically worked out a treaty so that these guys wouldn't come into Israel and attack them and do what the Assyrians normally do with people like that. They just basically destroy them. So he started paying tribute. But in paying them tribute, it actually made Israel immensely wealthy because then the Assyrians started trading with Israel. And all the wood and the olive oil was carted up north. A lot of it was in tribute. A lot of it was in taxes. But a lot of it also was in trade. And by the time his great-great-great-great-grandson became king, Jeroboam II in 790 BC, Israel was actually quite a wealthy place. Uh, if you do read the book of Amos, which was written about this time, Amos has a lot of harsh words to say of Israel, where the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. He has a lot of pretty nasty things to say about the gap in riches that are happening in Israel in this time. All this money coming in from Assyria and only the rich people making the money and the poor people being left to be poor. It's also the time of when Jonah is about. This is the time when the Lord speaks to Jonah. Now, if you see that date, 790 BC, it's fascinating. But only 70 years later, Israel will disappear. And just 120 years later, Assyria will disappear. It's a bit of a sobering thought when you come to reading a book like Jonah. We think it's all about whales. But there is a lot going on in the world at this time. In Israel, there is a sense that 
No one cares for the poor or the widows or the marginalized and the rich just keep getting richer. There's a feeling that, you know, these foreign powers have complete control over us and we're living in fear of them. That our government doesn't care, our king doesn't care. He and his cronies are making more and more money. There's a lot going on in the world, not much different to some degree of where we are today, right? We kind of see what's going on in the world. They have an impact on us. A war in, in the Ukraine and our food prices go through the roof. A weird election process in the US causes us to get all jittery. It's like what goes on in the world we have no control over. And it's at this time God calls out to Jonah and says, hey, buddy, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now, there's a lot of question marks about where this Tarshish is. Some people say it's to the south and the Red Sea. I think actually it's further in Spain in a place just behind what was known at the time as the Pillars of Hercules. Today we call that Gibraltar. Behind that today there's a port town called Algeciras. That's where Tarshish would have been, just behind that. Basically, whether it's there or it's not, it doesn't really matter. He's going in the opposite direction to where God's called him to be. And he has the dubious honour of being the only prophet being called by God to go do something that he decides not to do that. Not only am I not going to do that, I'm going to go in the complete opposite direction. Which is funny for a prophet, right? I mean, he knows God. What do you think God's going to do? Where do you think you can hide, Jonah? But that's what he does. Now, Jonah's a funny book. It's a funny book because... It's different from the other minor prophets. It's actually different from many of the other books in the Old Testament and New Testament because this is actually all about God. I know it's about Jonah and a whale, and it's kind of cool. We've got some really cool stories about it. We've got some great titles for, um, for sermon series, like A Whale of a Tale. We've got all this stuff. But while Jonah is kind of the, the guy in there, and there is a whale. It's actually all about God. This is a very personal interaction between man and God. Between the wants of us and what we see, what's going on in the world, and God and how he actually sees it. Many of the early rabbinic teachers really struggled with Jonah. Because he was just that different. And, and God is just way too personal in this. And also way too forgiving. It's fascinating. But as we open up this first part of Jonah, the first thing we see straight away is that God actually cares for all people. I know for us Christians, we like to think that we're exclusive that we have the favour of God because we believe in him through Jesus Christ and we're saved and we're singled out. And many of us might have a theological uh, belief that we are 
predestined to be this way so that we are the elect. But Jonah kind of talks against that. It shows that he actually cares about all people, no matter how bad they actually are. Because of their wickedness, I can't begin to tell you how much the peoples of this time could not stand the Assyrians. They were awful. Now, you look back in history and you can see lots of pretty awful groups of people. But they're still people. And God still cares about them. And while Jonah heads in the other direction, God's pretty intent on saying, no, I need to turn you back around. And here God can really use anyone to set us straight. God God can use anybody to set us straight. Here's the story how it goes. Then Jonah, uh, then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God and they threw cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, hey, how can you sleep? Get up, call on your God. Maybe he'll take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. And so they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he answered, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the Lord. You can almost hear him say this. Yeah, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord. The Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Yeah. This terrified them and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from them because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to make the sea come down? And again, I could just imagine him going, just pick me up and throw me in. Throw me into the sea and it will become calm. And I know that it's all my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did the best they can to row back to land, but they could not for the sea grew even wilder than before. And then they cried out to the Lord, Lord, Please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you please. And then they took Jonah, threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. It's fascinating that these guys had far more fear of God than Jonah did. It's fascinating that these guys were far more respectful of him than Jonah was. Now, Jonah knew most probably what was going to happen. He knew he wasn't going to drown there. Why? Because God wanted him to go someplace he didn't want to go. These guys got rid of their livelihood to keep this man alive. They threw the cargo over, which meant when they arrived in Tarshish, they're not going to get any money. They've got nothing to sell. And not only that, they were still quite hesitant about throwing him overboard because they didn't want to anger God. So if God could use a bunch of godless sailors to set you straight, he will. If he's going to use a bold Aussie fat Italian pastor sitting on a stage, he will. If he's going to use a kid 
to set you straight, he will. If he's going to use some foreigner who has no idea who God is, he will. God will use anything to set you straight without hesitation. Why? Because he cares for all people. He cares for all people. And I can only imagine poor old Noah, uh, Noah, Jonah. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God. I've always thought, why three days? And, you know, people use the analogy of Jesus, and we could use the number three and what it means to the Jews in general. But I think there's just been a bit of time because, first of all, Jonah's must probably sitting in there going, okay, God, I'm over this now, move on. But had to get him to a point where he would pray, where he would understand that he had a mission that God wanted him to do and he would submit to that mission. And believe me, being in the belly of a fish may not have been a very good thing. It's not like Geppetto and Pinocchio where he had a little, you know, board that he had a little coffee steaming on the side in the empty belly of a of this whale. It would have been pretty horrendous. And, and what we hear here, what we see here is this, that God will work even through our failures. Even when we're disobedient, even when we are sinful, even when we turn from him, even when we run from him, God will still work with us. He still loves us. There's not a thing that you've done that God doesn't know about. And for some of us, maybe we've been a bit too arrogant in our lives, whether as prophets or as tent makers or as pastors or whatever, that when we truly hear God's calling, we are very quick to turn away from it. It scares us. Maybe our past failures are what drive us, fear that we will fail, or maybe like Jonah, our hatred or anger towards these people who have done us so wrong for so long. What is it that keeps you from serving God where he's called you to be? There are many things in this world that can stop us from doing anything God calls us to do. I know what stops me. The moment I get in a car, I forget that I'm a pastor. The moment I drive on Interstate Highway number two, that then molds into number one, as I go into Wellington, holiness drains out at that point, doesn't it? We kind of laugh because we're all like, yeah, me too. But what is it that holds you back? What are you running from? What's stopping you from serving God where you are? Where he has you right now? 2024 is a new year. And maybe for the last year or two, you've been trying to make your way to Tarshish. You've been weathering storms in your life. Well, maybe today is the day to jump overboard. It may mean that you'll be in the belly of a whale. It may mean that you need to do some praying. 
but God will work even through your failures, even through your stubbornness, even through your hardships, even through your hurts. Jonah is a fascinating, fascinating book. Where God shows his true colors, his heart and his love for the people he created. That includes you, includes those around you. No matter how bad they are, no matter how frustrating they are, no matter how much they may have hurt you or you've hurt them, he still cares about you. So you you have this week ahead of you to kind of contemplate and think as we prepare for next week's sermon. Challenge I want to lay at your feet is this. What is holding you back? Why are you not in the place God wants you to be? What's holding you from being the person God has called you to be in the place that you are? All these questions I lay at your feet. And I challenge you, 2024 is a new year. Amen? Amen. I'm going to ask the music team to come up. I'm already up here. Um, Let us pray. Father God, for some of us, Lord, it's, it's, (laughs) it's a new year. Tomorrow we're all back to work. Holiday's done. Back to the usual grind. Some of us scratching our heads thinking, well, what, where am I supposed to be, Lord, here and now? What, what, what have you called me to be, Lord? And Father, I pray this morning as, as we head out, may we be challenged, not just by Jonah or by what the actions of these sailors were or what his mission was, but challenged by your heart, God. You love all people. And you care deeply for us. And you can work through anything. So show us, Lord, I pray. As we contemplate your word this week, where would you have me? Where would you have us? What's holding us back? In Jesus' name.